Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. Founders is a term that we typically use to refer to just a few men, usually the first four presidents of the United States, plus Ben Franklin, and nowadays, Alexander Hamilton. We think of them as typical representatives of their age, which produced civic saints full of wisdom and bursting with service to the new nation. We don't usually think about other founders, all those men and women who created the institutions, the politics, and the culture of the new republic, people from ranging from Richard Allen to Judith Sargent Murray to John Jay. If you don't know who those are, you should look them up. And we certainly don't consider that an age which considered people like Washington to be heroic had points of contrast, the many unscrupulous figures who violated the era's expectation of public virtue and advanced their own interests at the expense of others. These were the founding scoundrels whose plots and cons ended up shaping the nation sometimes as much as did the institution builders. With me are David Head and Timothy J. Hemis, co-editors of a new book, A Republic of Scoundrels. Timothy Hemis is an associate professor of history at Texas A&M University in Central Texas, where his teaching focuses on early American history and American military history. David Head is history professor at the University of Central Florida and author of A Crisis of Peace, George Washington, The Newburgh Conspiracy, and The Fate of the American Revolution, which he and I discussed in episode 145 of this podcast. Gentlemen, welcome to Historically Thinking, or David, welcome back. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation again. Thank you, Al. Welcome. Let's begin with uh, what's a scoundrel? What's a scoundrel? And isn't that a rather odd term to use in 2023? And did people actually use it in the 1770s and 1780s? Is that, or is that just sort of like um, kind of a soap opera, masterpiece theater kind of language? You know, Al, scoundrel is a term that we might often think of as an archaic term. And, but it really has a, a political meaning uh, that is kind of a, a villainous uh, kind of rascal, so to speak. And it was used by sometimes political rivals to label their enemies. And a lot of them also, anybody that didn't fit in with the social norms of the time, and so it had a very important meaning uh, to the 18th century. David, do you yeah, want to so add to that? One of the reasons we chose uh, Scoundrel for the title is just this kind of uh, interplay between it's – it's where people today know, right? It's not so obscure that people don't know what it means because um, that makes a very poor title. Uh, everybody knows it's kind of a bad guy, but it also has that connotation of being kind of rayfish, kind of you know intriguing – kind of not so evil that it repulses you, but it's kind of a, a, attractive also, a kind of guy who makes his own rules. That was a term they used in the 18th century. Um, it's, it's, it goes back to that period. It's the kind of thing, as Tim said, that you would insult your opponents with. Got to be careful with it because it, it, you know, it's a, um, attack on a man's character, which can escalate, um, through an affair of honor, possibly to exchange of gunfire. Um, but it has that, it's not just an insult. Right. It has that meaning of you're lacking in virtue and not just, you know, you don't know your manners or how to behave or something. But saying someone lacks in virtue for a politician in the 18th, early 19th century really means that they're unfit for public service. And if you're a politician, a man in public life to be called unfit for public service. Right. That's just not damaging your career. It's damaging your whole character that people cannot trust you uh, with, with power. And that what what we realized what, what what we realized was that there are all these people who don't fit that ideal of public virtue, and some of them are trying to hide it, but others are are fairly open that they are out for themselves, right? To to enrich themselves um, through uh, to make more money for themselves, obviously, but also for power, right? To have greater control over events and other people, uh, to set themselves up as leaders. And the ability to do that uh, really kind of runs counter to the ideal of the 18th century world coming out of the American Revolution, where you're supposed to be self-sacrificing is the way that you gain the trust of others 
and are then um, uh, given responsibility okay, and the power that goes along with it. So we're really intrigued by the people who were very, fairly openly for themselves, manipulating circumstances to advance themselves in a way that the kind of mainstream culture of the late 18th and early 19th century said, you're not supposed to do that. But there are all these guys who were doing it anyway. So these are men, and they're all men in this book. I guess we could have found one or two women. There's got to be a woman scoundrel out there somewhere in early America. Um, but these are men who understand, in fact, moral norms and decide to flout them. Yes, that's exactly right. And you, you, you hit upon one of the things, right? These are all guys. Um, and I think it, it's not just that we, we chose to focus on all men, but I think that the idea of a scoundrel is especially attached to men in this period because of the way in which they may have aspired to a public role, right, in late 18th and early 19th century, which is usually coded as a male role oh, in nice. that in that period. So, yes, yeah, certainly there were women. I mean, there are all kinds of deceitful women who would, you know, thieves and all kinds of doing all kinds of terrible things, right? That's just part of human nature. But I think they're not quite scoundrels because they're not kind of aspiring to this mm -hmm. role, this public role that the, you know, the, the culture of the time would have completely put off, off limits, um, you know, and only, and except for only the most ex extraordinary cases. So, yeah, so it's, so that's why, that's why we have, uh, we have a bunch of guys as our, as our subject. So we, we do have one uh, murderer in the book, but he, I guess, is the one person in the book who doesn't aspire to some public role. Yeah, so that is uh, oh. Jason Fairbanks. Um, he was uh, accused and tried for murdering uh, the the woman he claimed to love, and it's one of these stories of you know, the really about possession, right? He he wanted her, and she apparently didn't want to marry him, and you know he just couldn't stand that, right? Um, and I think even there, you know, so so Jason Fairbanks is not someone who is going to be on the track to become. Uh, the governor, he's from Massachusetts or a, a politician or something. But in his own mind, I think he aspired to a position of influence. Okay. So, so even there, you see someone who's trying to set himself up and kind of his grand, grandiosity is part of his story. And we can see from the outside that this guy's going nowhere fast. He's kind of a loser. Um, but in kind of his own mind, he thought himself as a gentleman as, and as a scholar and as somebody who had a big, bright future. And when it wasn't working out for him and the, 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 the woman he wanted uh, rejected him, right, his whole world came crashing down and then he struck out violently. So, yes, he's not quite the same as the others. You're right about that. He doesn't have the, some kind of prospects. But certainly, I think if you'd asked Jason Fairbanks, right, uh, you know, before everything went south, what is your future? He may have said, you know, United States Senator. So that was his ambition in his mind. Well, that just shows how evil he actually was. Uh, Tim Hemis, uh, how do you uh, divide uh, the scoundrels up into the book? You have sort of variations of of scoundrel scoundrelity, scoundrelness, yeah. uh, but there are there are types of scoundrels. There are species within this genus. Yeah, you have <clears throat> those who are really self-interested in for, you know, apolitical reasons, you know, thinking about, you know, Aaron Burr trying to, to move up the ladder. And I mean, he was vice president, but he's still doing all these other things to, to hold on to power. Uh, you have land speculators that are trying out to, to, to carve out a fortune for themselves. And a lot of those are on the frontier and, and the, the borderlands offer some kind of, you know, the fringes offer a way to exploit these uh, not so reputable schemes. Um, and then you have people like James Wilkinson uh, that is about military power and trying to also line his pockets while doing it. Um, so a lot of them are economic. And then of course we have one that is, you know, outright a criminal. And then we have foreign. The last one is kind of the foreign interests you know, people like uh, Don Diego Dardaki, who is a Spanish minister to the United States, who was once a hero and then kind of moves into trying to disrupt the Republic by having all these other schemes and, and trying to influence folks to break away from the United States. 
Well, as we see, we'll talk about this in just a, a second. Um, a lot of the book, the characters are focused in the early Republic and focused on the, let's call it the Trans-Appalachian West. They're uh, on the, what is then the Western frontier, which is in between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River. And they're either located there or they have substantial interest there or want to expand it. We'll, and we'll get, we'll get to that in just a second. But I wanted to focus, you, you begin with two, um, one, an obvious traitor, Benedict Arnold. We're not going to talk about him because I'm reserving that Elliot Cohen and I as two long Arnold enthusiasts are going to finally have an Arnold Palooza, which might go on for two, three hours. I don't know. And so I'd never have to talk about or think about Benedict Arnold again. Um, but so we'll, I'm going to del- not talk about him in this conversation. That's reserved. I think that that podcast will drop on uh, on December 31st. Uh, to commemorate Arnold's almost victory over the Quebec City, and but we'll instead let's talk about Charles Lee. Um, people don't know who Charles Lee was anymore. He doesn't come up much in textbook histories of the American Revolution. So, could uh, Tim? Could you begin with uh, who Charles Lee was at the beginning of the Revolution, and then David, maybe you could transition to explain how Charles Lee blotted his copybook. So Charles Lee, um, first I want to give a shout out to Mark Lender, who wrote the chapter on Charles Lee. Um, and he was a general in the Continental Army um, and had connection, previous experience in the British military. Um, and he always saw himself as a rival with Washington. And this led to a lot of angst amongst the two and then pushed forward into basically saying, you know, always contradicting Washington, always kind of, you know, thinking about kind of how he's going to, you know, supplant Washington because he believed he was, he was better than Washington to lead the continental army, which led him into some scoundrelous activity. and so, um, can we, I mean, he, yeah. he is, as I recall, he is a radical Whig by the time he comes. I mean, obviously yeah. he leaves England and emigrates to America in what, 1772, 1773. So his politics are definitely of the John Wilkes radical, radical, not even radical Whig, just mm-hmm. radical variety. And in many ways, he's much more radical. He's like Tom Paine in many, many ways. He's much more radical as an Englishman who's recently transplanted himself to America than many of the actual Americans are. Mm -hmm. That's certainly part of his charm for some of the revolutionaries, but that's also part of his brand. Yeah, it, it is. And I mean, he was, his criticisms, you know, often got him tarnished as, as a scoundrel because Washington, you know, was born in Virginia and it, there was, there's connections there. And it's again, this rivalry between those two that often made, made him into a kind of a side figure in American history. We don't talk about Charles. We talk about George Washington, right? So. so, David, how did he really run? How did his scoundrelness express itself? Ultimately? Yeah, so, so Lee has the misfortune to be captured uh, during the war, and he's made into a prisoner of war. And he's not even like captured, you know, through a, like a heroic last stand or something where uh, he's, he's fighting and then the, troop, the enemy troops overwhelm him or something, and he goes kicking and screaming. He's captured because, you know, he kind of lets his guard down and he's in and, and his house at night. And the British sneak in and they, you know, they, they grab him. Uh, I think supposedly he was uh, he was made prisoner while he's in his nightshirt. Right. So this is not a very glorious way to be taken by the enemy. And then because, you know, he's a gentleman in the 18th century, um, you know, being a prisoner of war as a, as a gentleman officer, as a general, uh, you know, it's not being thrown into the dungeon. Um, it is, you know, you're given a fair amount of um, comfort considering the circumstances, right? You're 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 taken at your word uh, that you're not going to, you know, escape and go over to the enemy or go back to your troops or something like that. So he has a lot of time on his hands, 
and he writes this uh, this letter that this is fairly mysterious. He writes a letter that's basically outlining how the British could win the war, and he addresses it to the British commanders, and it's kind of you know giving. Kind of plotting out the strategy. Where are the American weaknesses uh, and how the British could best exploit them? Interestingly, this letter was not discovered until the 1850s. There's an archivist, I believe it's in, in uh, New York, discovers this letter that, that Lee had written. It's not clear whether it really ever got to its intended destination or exactly what happened with the letter. Um, but uh, you can imagine the guy who finds this. He's like, whoa, <laughs> the American commander was giving away all the secrets to how the British could defeat the Americans. Um, in, our, in the chapter, Mark Leonard discusses you know, what, what this letter is and how significant it was. Um, and he argues that you know, even though it seems sensational, right? what is he doing writing on this topic at all? Um, Lee is not really giving away any information the British didn't already know. Okay? He's just outlining things that are, that are basically known to and would have been known to any competent British commander what the strengths and weaknesses are. He's not giving away the playbook and the, uh, and the play sheet and the signals, right, uh, that the other team is stealing. He's doing stuff you can see on film, right, if you're, if you're watching the football game. That, that's the secrets he's giving away. Um, so Lee is eventually paroled and goes back uh, in, into action. But he, this happens to every commander, right, who has the audacity to challenge Washington. Because Washington is the, not only the commander, part of being the commander-in-chief of Washington is being the symbol of the revolution, okay? even during the war, but especially afterwards. Um, if Washington did it, it was right. And so, therefore, if somebody opposed Washington, they were wrong, regardless of the fact that it's natural to have disagreements over strategy and tactics, all that kind of thing. Uh, where this really comes to a head is at the Battle of Monmouth, where uh, Lee... Uh, is kind of using his best judgment about how to uh, fight the British, okay? uh, but it's not as aggressive as Washington was wanted. Okay? And uh, Lee and Washington supposedly have this confrontation. Uh, Mark Lender again goes into this famous story where supposedly uh, Washington comes upon Lee leading a retreat, and then he swears at him and yells at him and all kinds of things. There's one of the great quotes where someone said that uh, uh, Washington swore uh, that he's never heard such swearing before. It shook the very leaves in the trees, that kind of thing. That's most likely uh, kind of a, an embellishment that, that shows up later. And then Lee faces a, a court-martial um, to, to try to salvage his reputation. So Lee's reputa- his reputation for a scoundrel comes from that letter that was discovered later and the fact that he did not fall in line as one of the guys who's worshipping Washington. And given the way the war turns out, those two things make historians looking back really think, that Lee was out for himself um, and not um, did not have the best interests of the American War, uh, despite as you mentioned that he was a Whig, he was hot politically, he was hot for the American cause politically, not just kind of a, a mercenary or something like that. Um, so even despite the enthusiasm for the war, the fact that he challenged Washington is what tarnishes his reputation ultimately. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, I mean, he had a bad enough reputation when he mm-hmm. died. Because he was also, let's be fair, an oddball. I would expect him to find him in the professoriate, <laughs> you know, with his dogs and his, you know, not shaving and his uh, aversion to hygiene. And, and you know, he speaks French fluently. I mean, you know, this is a weird mm-hmm. Englishman in that way. He spends time at the Polish court. But just in, it's really that 18, those 1850s letter. I mean, I know that by the 20th century, people just believe that he was actually a British agent. That he ha- had become a, a sort of agent in place at the at at the Battle of Monmouth, which is that's completely over the top, as as Mark argues and has argued, uh, based upon the actual evidence of what was going on. Yeah, in the you battle. wonder what you know. Why in the world is he writing this? You know, uh, is it to try and curry favor with you the do. British? You know, because I don't know. Maybe you got to hedge your bets because you don't know how the war is going to turn out. Mm, you know. um, I bet it's boring being a prisoner. You know, I mean, you got to keep your mind sharp yeah. somehow uh, by, you know, keep yourself entertained. Um, you know, you can only go on so many, you can only have walk, so many walks and tea parties <laughs> with the, uh, with the British office, other officers. Okay. So some combination of that, it, it does not seem like he was really giving away secrets as like, as a paid agent or anything like that. Um, 
you know, I, I really, I like that, you know, he, he's, think, he's giving away secrets that competent commanders would have already known, you know. Now, maybe uh, there's a politician who doesn't know well, that. Let's but talk about, let's talk about the, um, the West, the West as was in 1785 and 1790. Um, this takes me back to one of my earliest historical reading experiences, uh, The Man Without a Country. And in fact, Philip Nolan shows up in this book, the real Philip Nolan, Edward Everett Hale's Man Without a Country, which is set in this time of, as Hale writes, of, uh, you know, the uh, Kentucky, Kentucky plots and crises and all the rest of this stuff. Um, what was familiar to Hale in what, 1862, writing against the back of the Civil War, probably reading, um, oh gosh, Who's the first biographer of, of, help me out, David. Who's the first biographer of Washington? Oh, Strong. Um, the, uh, but the uh, Unitarian minister in Boston. Um, but Hales, uh, as a fellow, he knows all the stories, but we've completely forgotten what they're referring to. Um, so we see, we'll talk about Aaron Burr in a bit. We'll see this is extraordinary, but in many ways, the whole Burr plot, whatever it was about, was one in a long succession of various schemes and cons and land deals and whatnot. So Tim, if you could set that up for us, what, what is the, what's the situation um, west of the Appalachians? Like at about the time Kentucky decides it wants to be its own state rather than being blessed as part of the best state in the country. So there's several things going on. You have to understand that we're still dealing with the articles of confederation. And mm -hmm. the weaknesses of that political framework is really one of the, the things that are driving people a, to the West, but it's also saying, hey, where, what the economic status is so fragile, people are looking for any kind of stability. And so especially on the frontier, the people that are moving out in that trans-Appalachian area are see themselves as different. And there's almost this East-West regionalism that's going on. And so you start to see people on the other side of the Appalachian Mountains start to look to other places for that type of stability and specifically economic reasons, right? Um, and I keep thinking about kind of, you, you talked about Kentucky and you know, James Wilkinson is his Kentucky scheme, so to speak, um, in 1788, 1789, trying to break away the Kentucky for the Spanish. And not everybody wants to break away from the United States. Sure, there is a handful of people that do, um, because of economic reasons, the stability, the free access to the Mississippi River and so forth. Um, so it's really this, you know, the fringe, the, the, the borderlands are that kind of fringe area where there's a, you could go either way, but you're starting to see people even like there's several different groups within Kentucky, for example, that some want to break away from Virginia, but not the United States. There are some that want to break away and join the Spanish and then others just, you know, are kind of in the middle, like kind of all, you know, politics are kind of way waiting to which way the wind blows. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's really this tumultuous period and this tumultuous area because it's a, where, where is the order? Where's the, there's no, you know, power overlooking them. It, it strikes me uh, in many of these people that we talk about in an era, an age of the enlightenment, which prizes classification above almost anything, identity is extraordinarily fluid. Uh, citizenship is extraordinarily fluid. Uh, are you an Indian? Are you white? As you people try to make these racial categories, people slip between these categories. Are you Spanish? Are you American? Are you Virginian? Are you Kentuckian? Are you from Connecticut? Are you from Ohio? These things all swirl about, you know, in pol political and social identities. Yeah, and there's no – what is a concept of being an American? There isn't really one. And so it's kind of all over, and and people are moving in between all these things, very fluid, as you said. 
Um, and one of those, one of those actors that are out there that are kind of hedging on this, uh, fluidness is a guy named Don Diego Bardaki, who's the Spanish minister to the United States. He's in one hand being a minister to the United States, but he's also encouraging Americans to join the Spanish um, and create their own colonies and do all these other different things, uh, whether it's to create the, the free state of Franklin or, you know, have a Wilkinson and encourage the Kentuckians to break away and join the Spanish or encourage George Morgan to create the new colony, the Spanish colony of New Madrid in the present day Missouri. All these things are going on in the 1780s. It's, it's I mean, a- so this seems to have been, I mean, this is what John Jay realized when he came from Spain to Paris, from Madrid to Paris, after battering his head against the Spanish court for several years when he came to start to negotiate the Treaty of Paris, he realized that France and Spain were in sort of collusion to limit the United States to the eastern side of the Appalachians. Um, so what we're saying is that that Spanish policy continued up until until it couldn't anymore. Yeah, in a lot of ways, this continues really later on into the 19th century. Yeah. Um, and we and we, um, my students always used to be uh, fascinated when Tocqueville in the ver- first chapter of Democracy says that America is a valley. It's an entire place is a valley with a Mississippi in the center. And of course, if they're on the East Coast, or even if they're in the Midwest, they don't necessarily think of it that way. But of course, actually, he's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And when you have New Orleans, as the Spanish do, you have the cork, you have you have the gateway of the only way to trade in most of the American continent is using the Mississippi. Yep. Not prior to the railroad. Well, I was going to say the Erie canal. I just covered that in class. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Well, but we, I mean, this is, but this, I mean, and this gets back yeah. to like Washington and the rest of them. There are people like Rufus King and high federalists mm-hmm. who are really anti the West and believe that we should allow them to secede. That becomes a, a thing. I, I wonder if you can trace that all the way to like garrison and, and people that want to the South to secede as abolitionists. This becomes like a, a Boston thing. Just let those people go away. Um, we don't need them. But then you've got people like, you know, in New York, but also Washington, Washington's passion for the Potomac Canal, which looks now geographically crazy, is very rational because I don't think that there's nothing that preoccupies I mean, I asked you about this, David, since, you know, we're both Washingtonians. I don't think anything preoccupies Washington more from to the end of his life than two things, Union and West. And the, and the things are intimately related for him. Um, having a Western canal, a canal to the West, it, sure, it's great for him. It's great for Virginia. It's great for the Potomac. He's always wanted one since the 1750s. But also, it unites America in a way that nothing else will do. All right, that, that, that's a great way to put it as connecting the the economic right, right, the the the, the West um, and connecting it to Eastern markets and all the economic activity can, can go on. That that one that was pretty obvious, right? That's why you want a canal. But connecting that to um, the question of union, right, is really important because that's in Washington's mind and a lot of people, a lot of uh, thinkers' minds, right? How is this country, this landmass, going to stay together as one country? Because in the 1780s, it's not entirely clear that that's desirable or a particularly likely outcome is the whole large landmass to stay together as one country, especially if there's going to be rapid movement westward and there'll be new, new, new states incorporated into the Union who are not there at the beginning, who have different geography and economic interests and different uh, people and culture and habits. How are they all going to stick together as one thing? And that's an open question, especially since there are hostile enemies right on America's border. One thing, when I was, I was actually writing the conclusion to the, to the book, and it's like they hadn't really, it's one of those things you know, but you don't really know or appreciate the significance of. It's the fact that the United States has Spain as its neighbor for almost 40 years, from the end of the American Revolution up until the, um, the transcontinental treaty that cedes, uh, Florida's and settles the border and all that kind of thing. 
So that's a long time for the United States to have Spain on its borders. And, you know, as Americans today, I know my students never would never think about this. They, they know Florida was once part of the Spanish, Spanish territory, but not it was, it, Spain was, was on the border of the United States for such a long time. So it's how do we keep people together internally? How do we protect the nation from an external threat? And then the thing that could, could help all of this is that economic um, connection together. However, as you mentioned, that's where all of this is most vulnerable is through New Orleans which is controlled by the Spanish. So that's why we get all this, this angst. Um, these various scoundrels were active in the West. There, there is a, there's like a, there's a pressure point there that they can push on to try and open up room for themselves, right? Uh, Spanish and American anxieties about each other. Let's go back to Don Diego, because as people will be unfamiliar, you rattle off a number of different schemes. Um, none of them will be, uh, comprehensible to people. So the state of Franklin, what's that? So the state of Franklin was this kind of a, the part of it's the Western territories of like the Carolinas and the Eastern territories of Tennessee. What we have today, the people in the Appalachians, right. Um, that really wanted to create their own new state named after Ben Franklin, of course. But there's this angst between how do you create a state and all these things. Um, and the other thing is, is that Dargaki is trying to influence those leaders to maybe join the Spanish. And there's conversations about that. And that's, that's the foreign influence that we don't think about that the Spanish are heavily involved in those early the early politics, especially on the frontier. Um, the James Wilkinson uh, Kentucky scheme. James Wilkinson. So in 1788, 1789, James Wilkinson has, has retired and I retired from the military and gone to Kentucky, Frankfurt, to try to start his own schemes of business of trying to sell tobacco down to, to New Orleans. Well, there is, it's not free access to go to New Orleans at that point. And so he's down there and he takes a trip down with, and the, the guys are selling his, his goods to New Orleans and he meets the governor and, and is trying to convince the Spanish that he can, he can gather the Kentuckians and join the Spanish. And he, he even makes a list of who he can pay and who he has to pay off and convinced without pay and all sorts of, and those, those who won't break away from the United States. Um, and largely this all fizzles out at the end. Um, but it shows, you know, Gardaki and, and the Spanish are absolutely have their finger on the pulse of this early Republic because they are threatened by this Republic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it basically is from both the American perspective and the Spanish perspective. Either is basically everything they dislike mm-hmm. in a country: Protestant, Catholic, yep. you know, absolutist, you know, Republican. We could go on down the list. Mm-hmm. You know that uh, politically and culturally, they're at, at great. They they have really little in common other than you know that parts of them ha- that have the institution of slavery. That and that is insufficient. And one of the interesting things is there's these, a lot of Americans that do end up going to the other side of, to the other side of the Spanish territory to New Orleans and joining the Spanish because they are promised free access to the Mississippi River. They're promised all these other lucrative things. And the other thing is, is with the art, especially during the time of the Articles of Confederation, is the country, is the new constitution going to be any better? There's, there's so many questions about this time period and people are, are moving. Now it's not like thousands upon thousands of people, but it's still a sizable number. Where's Don Diego based? Is he in Philadelphia or New Orleans? So he's in, uh, he's in New York and in Philadelphia. He's wherever the capital is. Okay. Okay. So he's, and, and so he's there running his, his covert action schemes sort of, 
in the shadow of what government there is, corresponding with people in Franklin, corresponding with people in Kentucky. What's the New Madrid colony? So the, the New Madrid colony is one that is in actually in present day New Madrid, Missouri. Uh, and George Morgan, Colonel George Morgan, who does make an appearance in the book as a witness against Burr. And there is a little bit talking about New Madrid, but it's not uh, a prominent feature in the book. But New Madrid was his, he was joined the Spanish through influence of Gardaki to set up this colony. Uh, he had previous experience in the Illinois country, which is on the eastern side of the Mississippi River. So he kind of knew the area. And so they, they asked him, they offered him, you know, a thousand acres, uh, his children to go to school in New Orleans and, and a commission for his oldest son and so forth. And long story short, he doesn't get paid. And after 40 days, he goes home. So. <laughs> So this is uh, it gives an indication of why Jefferson really wanted the Louisiana Purchase and why he would have settled just for what we call Louisiana or just New Orleans. That was worth it to get all the rest of that stuff was what was important was the mouth of the Mississippi. And as Jefferson would say, I mean, that he's continuing Washington's policy is not to have a situation where there has to be a balance of powers on the continent. Where you're, it's going to be Spain and France and Britain and America, and you have to you're in the same kind of struggle that they are in Europe, balancing power against yeah, one that's another. A, that's a great point because I think David? the way we teach the Louisiana Purchase and this kind of era of, of the West there really emphasizes the economic benefit uh, of acquiring that territory. That it was the farmers in that in, in all throughout the West who wanted to send their goods out to to uh, to the world to the Mississippi, so. The Jefferson administration acquired that and it opened up the West to move and everything. We don't, we almost never tell that story as a security story, right? And as a balance of power story, uh, which it certainly is as well. Yeah. It's so it's so you read Jefferson's letters and it's the, the, the economics takes a back seat to the. Right. Other and stuff. we really, yeah, the way, I think. certainly the way students understand it and the way we teach it is it's, it's really flips it around or even doesn't even mention the security part about that. I think probably from our perspective, it's easier to recognize the economic benefits. It's hard to imagine a world in which the United States is not the preeminent superpower. It's just, it's just hard to imagine that world uh, from, yeah. to, from today's perspective. Well, this gets us to our, uh, another character, William Augustus Bowles. Which I was, I mean, I've been reading a lot about the summer of 1790 for an essay I've been writing. And I've been, uh, or is it 1790? I'm, I'm confused. And this is like the, the, all of a sudden, the Nootka Sound crisis, uh, which I was pleased to see the Julian Boyd, the great editor of the, the first editor of the Jefferson Papers, really he devoted like 80 pages to an essay on the Nootka Sound crisis in the Jefferson Papers. It's like, Boyd, why didn't you just write the damn book? <laughs> But uh, it's obviously, to my mind, the most galvanizing event, one of the most galvanizing events in the early American Republic that no one, and I mean, even specialists never think about. But it is huge because it affects everything. Uh, it continues right in this line that, of Don, that Don Diego Garlequi has been pursuing. Could you, could one of you explain to our baffled listeners what the Nootka Sound crisis is and why it affects the geopolitics of the North American continent. David, go go for it. You know what the Nootka yeah, Sound so crisis is. Yes, this is a uh, this is I, I believe this is out in the in the west, the western part of the of the country, and it's a, a it's, Vancouver it's, Vancouver yeah, Island. Vancouver Island, yeah, and then in the Pacific trade, and it involves the United States and Spain. Is Russia involved in this too? I, I it's what. It's yeah, it's 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 very comp and and Britain most Britain, importantly Britain. Most importantly, Britain's and always the preeminent power, and it's really it's these questions about you know it's funny, it, it's a it's not a particularly important place in the world, right? But it's important in terms of um, you know the relationships between these countries. Who's going to have the final say in all these places? Who was insulting whose honor? Does the United States have the wherewithal to? enforce its own policy, its own desires over its own kind of territory, or does the United States have to take orders from somebody else? And that's really, these issues kind of come up a lot. Um, 
where the United States cannot really bully its way through things, but it can't just roll over either. Um, so that's that's one right. of those, those those questions, right? It, it really gets at you know you brought up you know we we'll, we all only have so much bandwidth to remember important events, right? Um, but yeah. that doesn't mean that, that those are the only events that were important at the time. So it's just no. I mean, I, I you look at Washington's correspondence. His desk is filled with stuff related to this crisis because it looks like Spain and Britain. I mean, this happens in Vancouver Island. It's a confrontation between a Spanish warship and a bunch of British whalers, um, which are seized for being on Spanish territory. Just give the the origins of this. And it's one of those things where it looks like Britain and Spain are going to go to war and where someone in Europe catches cold, America is going to get pneumonia. Um, there's going to be a war up and down the Mississippi Valley between Spain and New Orleans and the British and Canada. And what about what America claims to be America, you know? Uh, and what about the Creeks? You know, what about we'll get to William Augustus Bowles? And his policy, this is an essay, uh, on, uh, by David Narrett. And he's trying to get the Creek nation to ally with the, someone against the Spanish. And maybe this is the chance for the Creeks to get there. And, and this is, this, I think this is probably giving Washington, this is giving Washington fits and maybe even sleepless nights. This is a big deal in 1790s America. We've kind of dropped it out. We've memory hold it because there's only, as you say, David, there's only so much we can remember. Tim, did you want to add something to that? Yeah, I, I just wanted to talk about kind of the Americans kind of going into the, I know it's not in the book, but the, you know, Robert Gray is going into the Pacific Northwest in the, in the 17, well, really in the late 18, 1800 or 18th century. And that's the first kind of claim that Americans have. Um, and so it adds into that kind of geopolitical Game of Thrones, if you will. Uh, everybody's kind of moving for for posterity reasons. Um, yeah. So, so we we are throwing our hat in the ring, so to speak, in that one. And but then in the Spanish, the Spanish in Florida, and you look at the you, you mentioned how the Creeks are looking to the Spanish, and and you have you know bulls in the Muskegee State. That is kind of set up in this kind of who are they going to look to for protection? Um, who and this upsets both the Spanish and the Americans, which then creates yes. anger for the for the early republic. William Augustus Bowles is a loyalist who, in a way, a loyalist who never stopped being a loyalist. Uh, is an Indian trader, uh, has a, a, a Muscogee Creek wife, sort of becomes a member of the of the tribe. Uh, of the of a clan and so on, and he has cemented himself. And he has a vision. He is probably both an idealist and a con artist. Um, you can be both. I don't think there's. <laughs> and he has a vision of a Muscogee nation. Uh, and he does he he goes to London right to be, drum up support from. Is that yes? Yeah, he travels pretty widely. He travels very widely in. Uh, well, sometimes uh, in ways that he doesn't want to travel because he's arrested at one point. Uh, but yes, he has this idea that he's going to create this this, this Creek nation. Um, importantly, with uh, he knows exactly who the right leader should be, uh, William Augustus Bowles, and he's just trying to establish himself as the leader of this of this mm -hmm. new nation. And he traveled to Canada, right, the drum of support there, and then he was in the Bahamas for a while, went over to London. And while he's in these places, I mean, there's no nobody in London knows who the real leader of this place and who knows where it really is. So he just if he just shows up with some documentation and acts the part, right? There's this famous uh, portrait of, of Bowles. We have it in the um, in the book, and it's really it's really striking. It has Bowles, right? It has a combination of some of the European uh, medals and the, the the clothing, but also the native headdress, right? Where he's really playing this up mm -hmm. as much as he can, that he's you know he has a foot in both worlds. Wearing the what the Muscogee the yeah, turban. turban, yeah, that's what it looks like. Um, yeah. With probably with his but with his British exactly, army coat, yeah, probably his, you some know, of his medals from the service there. Yeah. So yeah, if you show up looking the part, you know the British officials don't know. Like okay, all right, he's the you're 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 the leader. Okay, you, you, you seem like it. Uh, so he can kind of just Boy, present himself, and he's telling them he's telling them what. He's telling them what they want to hear, which yes, always helps. Yes, yeah. so he knows how to act the part. 
and you know, you mentioned he's supposed to be an idealist. I, I think he really does want an, a native nation, right? As what's you know best their security in, in future. But he wants to be in charge too, and he wants to be important and a player on world on the world stage. I mean, he wants that also. Uh, now that kind of backfires because he makes enemies of Spain. He's he's in prison in Cuba for a while. He's in prison in the Philippines. Um, so yeah, you, you gotta you know. Um, He's in, he's in prison the in Philippines, the Philippines. Yes, he's sent to the Philippines, like banished to the Philippines. Um, he's there for I think a couple of years. Oh, uh, I don't know. I don't know if that includes the the ship transit time or not. But he's in the Philippines there for for a while, and then back into Cuba. So he's traveling all over the world in pursuit of establishing himself as this leader of the Creek Nation. But meanwhile, Washington is engaged in the, for him, which is a very high stakes diplomacy. That's a, that's also the summer of seventeen ninety, right at the time to establish a sort of separate relations with the Creeks, and uh, through uh, the McGillivrays, and to uh, basically create a situation in which Washington's eyes they're basically the Liechtenstein to the, the Switzerland. They're a sort of protectorate. You know, with their own domestic affairs, but they, what they don't have, is a foreign policy with Spain or the or Great Britain. Right, that's the dangerous part for U.S. So, uh, foreign affairs, right? Uh, right, the, the, the Native American nations, the reservation, whatever domestic dependencies, whatever the term is, that's always been an anomaly in the in the U.S. political system, right? They're not states, but they're not their own nation. They have their own domestic affairs, but they, sh- from American perspective, they shouldn't have. Their own foreign affairs, because that gets into all kinds of other problems. And then you have this guy showing up in his turban uh, in London saying, hey, uh, I got a deal for you guys. Yeah, right. Well, let's uh, let's finish off with Aaron Burr. Uh, so, you know, this is uh, – we really can't neglect him. Uh, so, Tim, could you uh, – you wrote the essay on Aaron Burr. Uh, let's talk about Aaron Burr. From the right at the moment Alexander Hamilton died, and then let, and then let's follow him on, and then we can talk about why he seems to, even in his era, he exemplified what a what a scoundrel was. So after kind of the murder of Alexander Hamilton, he moves out west and starts gathering support, and it's very unclear what his motives were early on and eventually those motives will he'll he'll talk to a bunch of frontiersmen and one of those uh that i really focus in on is a guy named george morgan i mentioned him earlier when he had the new madrid but burr and morgan knew each other from the revolution uh they both uh were living near princeton at the time and they had they've had connections they've had interactions before and so they were old friends. And in 1806, uh, Burr arrives at his house, and he, Burr is thinking that he's going to be able to get a an ally because Morgan had issues with the United States prior, with when he was setting up New Madrid. And but Burr was even out there was seeing an old friend, but he was out there also interested in meeting a guy named David Bradford, who was the, one of the ringleaders of the Whiskey Rebellion, who had consequently had already left and went down to Baton Rouge to escape, you know, all those things. So, but what Burr is really interested in is this East-West kind of division. And if he can profit on this, if he can break away those frontiersmen uh, or even fight and drive and you know, drive Washington in the, into the Potomac, so to speak. Um, because he's, he's out for power. He's out for revenge, if you will. And so he starts talking to a bunch of people and you start to see he's gathering his, his people, his, the Burrites, if, if you will, if you want to call them that, um, and people that are like-minded and he's trying to capitalize on these, regional differences and the kind of this disdain for the East coast versus not the West coast, but the West, right? Um, because there's essentially two different cultures that are developing. Uh, and in that meeting with George Morgan, 
you can see they have a dinner conversation that it kind of explodes that, you know, Burr wants to talk about taking over Washington, D.C., and Morgan is not having it. And eventually, the next day, Burr leaves, actually goes and uh, is starting to ask around, where is David Bradford? And then the next day, Morgan sits down, George Morgan sits down and writes a letter to his friend, Thomas Jefferson, and said, hey, this guy's up to no good. And what's interesting is that initial letter to Jefferson is lost to history, but we know that that letter was written because Jefferson wrote a reply and talked about it. So it's really fascinating. So you, some uh, some of the most recent scholarship on Burr yeah. treats that missing letter and Morgan's yeah. allegations with like taking tweezers and and holding it, you know, uh, as f- something nasty found in the garbage. People treat, you know, it, so. I I had been before reading your essay. I thought I was supposed to be agnostic about what Burr was doing, yeah. but you really do think that he meant to, at first, do something against the central power of the United States before turning his ideas to capturing some bit of Spanish America and setting himself up independently. I do I do think that because he Morgan actually sits down and talks to Presley Neville who is a militia commander in the area. He also talks to another judge and is talking about this nefarious scheme. Son-in-law of Daniel Morgan? Yeah. By Presley Neville? Yeah, yep. Uh, He he sits down and has these conversations and writes letters and so forth, but it's he says it's a nefarious scheme against our country. That's a quote. Um, And he's concerned. Uh, He's not the only one concerned. George Morgan's son is concerned. William Eaton, the the uh, consul to Tunisia, who was also approached to joining. Now, what Burr does is interesting. Is when he talks to different people, his scheme slightly changes. To some people, it's taking the city of New Orleans and seizing their banks to fund a filibuster into Mexico. There's, a, you know, when he talks to Thomas Truxton, who's a Commodore Thomas Truxton, he is trying to seize. You know, send him to Jamaica to get a fleet. There's so many mysterious things. Truxton basically just says, no, go away. Like, I'll do this if the president says so, but no. So, and then, of course, the James Wilkinson interaction, um, Mm -hmm. where he sends Samuel Sword out to go and give him a cipher letter, which, if it's a cipher, why is it in a cipher? You know, and basically saying that, that Burr will be at the head of this this army, the state, and then Wilkinson will be his number two. They'll take New Orleans and move forward. And so, whether it's to carve out an empire for himself, to to attack Spain, or to take Washington D.C., all these are at some level an insurrection or even causing a civil war. So there, there's an essay by Gordon Wood in. Um I, what is revolutionary, uh, revolutionary characters, I mm-hmm. think. And he has a essay, famous essay on Aaron Burr, where he talks about the reason why Aaron Burr was hated was because his contemporaries saw him as falling so far from his promise. Here's Jonathan Edwards' grandson. You know, the, uh, the son and grandson of, of, of Mart, well, martyred, uh, by smallpox, Presidents of Princeton, um, rate the best schools, um, intelligent hero. And yet this is, this is it. This is what you've got. This is all you've done. Um, and so that he was, that this is, he was, he was the, the id to the ego. Mm -hmm. He was the, he was the shadow to the glory. Um, and this is kind of what you're saying about all the people in the book, right? Yeah, in a lot of ways, it's there's people are trying to obtain some kind of glory and honor, maybe even fortune, and they're doing it through hook, crook, and any which way they can. Um, and Burr fits that, um, mm-hmm. trying to regain some kind of reputation, lost glory, power, all these different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that that's the theme. David, yeah, that's the theme. That, that unites all these these characters is one of the consequences of the American Revolution is that opens up, right? It, it opens up 
uh, people to be able to pursue, right? Pursue happiness is the best they, they, they defined it. So now there are possibly multiple ways of defining, um, well, success isn't quite the right word because success implies uh, mostly economic uh, success, but you can fill in all the other ways of, um, you know, defining yourself as some as so, somebody worthy. Um, it's not the it, that that's both a good thing because it's not the old the old world means to glory, which is right on the battlefield and conquering your enemies, right? Going to war, that's what the kings always do. They go to war because they want to be like glory. There are other paths to glory. But there are also other paths to glory, which could be self-seeking and self-aggrandizing. So Burr, in you know, you mentioned the way he falls short of his potential, or that's frightening to everybody else because you could get all the inputs right, you know, the 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 mm-hmm. the family, right, family, the education, and the experience, the service in the American Revolution. He has all the ingredients all, all right, and it's still the fi- the finished product comes out wrong. And if the finished product can still come out wrong. Well, then what? Yeah, the the cake is the cake is just the cake is exactly, just not right? right. It's not fully it's baked, not, it, even though it's spent all yeah. the necessary time in the oven. All the ingredients are right, but right, yeah, this always happens to me when I'm trying to make a birthday cake or something. Why doesn't it look like it does in the YouTube video? I did. Exactly. I followed all the directions, and you know, and then you despair. Right? Exactly. Am I ever going to be able to make it even close to? It, it, yeah, that's a great analogy because that, that's what I, to worry about. If we get everything right, how can it still go wrong? Right. What else could go wrong? Yeah. And, you know, and I, I don't want to get too deep here, but uh, it's probably because I've been, I've been talking to talk to Brooke Manville and Josh Ober about their book about uh, the civic bargain about republics through history um, and some other uh, conversations I've done are, are forthcoming. But it strikes me, and you know, there's that famous conversation with um, that, at, that Jefferson reports in his annus um, with Hamilton when they're talking, they're having dinner in Jefferson's house. And he's like, who are those people? And it's John Locke and Francis Bacon and Newton. And he said, the three greatest men that ever lived. And Hamilton says, no, the greatest man that ever lived was Julius Caesar. Um, it strikes me that, you know, this is a problem with republics. It's a problem in Athens, you know, Themistocles, Alcibiades, uh, Alcibiades, he's a hero. He's the best. He is the Aaron Burr of Athens. And yet he betrays Athens twice, uh, once to the Spartans. And then again, he flees to the Persians. Um, Caesar, is he the best that Roman produced? Well, yeah, in some ways, pretty good, nice pro stylist, really successful general. He also destroyed, finishes destroying the Republic. Um, this idea of what how citizens in the Republic are supposed to behave as what a citizen is really. This is kind of what we're talking about is, you know, what, what is the virtue that citizens are directed towards? Are they directed towards self? Are they directed only to the Republic? Are they directed to both? How, you know, these are perennial questions, which I think your book kind of brings forward that this is, this is uh, Athenians had this problem. Um, so do Americans. Uh, we could even talk about the English. I mean, we could do a whole thing. Uh, we, we, it's obvious to us that Robert Walpole and whoever it was that did the South Sea bubble and the Augustan era, they're scoundrels. But, you know, that's also the Augustan age. It's an era supposedly of virtue, you know, but we've got plots, counterplots. This is in an increasingly, in, essentially in a monarchical republic of early 18th century England. So it seems to me this is a continuing, probably theme in thinking about citizenship in a republic. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent reflection um, of what we're trying to do in the book and with, with these characters, right? You know, what, what are the perennial problems that, that a republic faces? That's something that's on the, the forefront of many public thinkers' minds at the time. And it's still something we struggle with. What is our country? What do we owe to our country? Um, how do we improve it? How do we prevent uh, problems for right? That, that, that's, that's part of life. Um, you know, and we, we, one of the things history does, and our book has a series of profiles, right? Which is engaging. People like that. They like to look at other, read about other people. Um, you, need, you need models to follow and models to avoid, but people aren't models. Even the people we write about are reduced in some way. Right? We, we make it understandable, right? Because we only have you can't appreciate a whole a whole person. Um, so there's a trade-off there. But 
when the choices come down to us, right, we have to think about, well, these are the models I want to emulate, but it's always just a model and not the reality. Um, and that's easy to forget when we're looking at history. Mm-hmm. It's easy to shear off all those other pieces um, and just look at the model. And that's what I think we're, you're, the uh, conversation you mentioned between Jefferson and Hamilton, right? So they're each choosing pieces of what it means to be a good citizen and holding up the piece as if it's the whole. Mm-hmm. And then they, you know, they fight over that, right? But that, that's a perennial human problem. <laughs> but in the end, and of course, in the end, uh, Jefferson, through signing some paper, would add much more to territory Caesar, to the United Caesar States ever did, yeah. than uh, Caesar ever gained in Gaul. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tim, any reflections? I think one of the things that I, I hope this book does is it it sets the the idea that you know. We, we often think about the founding fathers as this, you know, hagiography, if you will, and that there should be more of the founding generation and that, that there's, there's a bunch of different characters that, that were shaping the country, you know, on, you know, all the different spectrums, if you will, of, you know, were they self-interested or virtuous? What, uh, whatever those were, they did help shape the country. And that's, adding into that story of, you know, American history. One final question. Uh, I'm sure that people have been already complaining to you about people that were left out. Uh, I, in the, and I was like, who would I put in? And I had, I now, I I just, I was just down doing some research and ran into a character that I never heard of before, but I would put him in the book if I, if I had to add a chapter to the book, but who do you wish that you, who do people complain that you left out? Um, or who do you kind of now wish you would put in? Well, this is, I'll I'll let you take this one, Tim. Tim had a list of about another dozen guys that he wanted to do. And he had to say, well, the press is not going to let us have uh, 500,000 words here. Let me see if I got one. I had George Matthews. Okay. Governor of Georgia, signed the Yazoo land deal, which was Mm -hmm. one of the huge scandals that, you know, just like upended Southern politics for the next 20 years. Um, but then he also was basically a very early filibusterer with his, basically the Patriot War of East Florida. Yep. Uh, but he's also a, an actual honest to God revolutionary hero. He's a man that survived the Jersey in New York, in Brooklyn Harbor. You know, he survived British captivity. You know, he was regarded as a very honorable soldier. And yet he does some things to really get some sort of political and local power, which even people who are on his side thought, yeah, that's kind of, that's a little dodgy. Yes. As David said, I had a whole list of these folks. Uh, Originally I was going to write a chapter on a guy named Hutchins, who's the geographer of the United States. Um, He was a captain in the British army during the war. And he is sent to London to write his findings. He was a geographer engineer for the British, uh, and he gets arrested as an American spy in London. And then we'll just say that the, he ends up escaping to France, swearing loyalty to the United States. And by the New Madrid time, he's even talking about joining the Spanish, resigning his commission, to the United States to join the Spanish. So hopefully there's a, there's a book in there I'm working on right now. On his biography, a man of a man of flexible interest, yes, or flexible morality, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So there's him. There's uh, David Bradford of the Whiskey Rebellion, yeah, the leader of the Whiskey Rebellion, uh, and then John Conley, who is a kind of a British. Oh, one of, my, it, one of my favorites from back when. Yeah, that, that is a man that always ends on his feet. Yes, uh, Doctor John Conley, who was. Or the Dunmore. Yeah, Dunmore don't forget War. the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then <laughs> he was, you know, there was a plot to sever New Orleans from the Spanish for the British and all sorts of different things that are going on. He just seems to appear um, kind of yeah, like James right. Wilkinson appears. Now, James Wilkinson what mm-hmm. is in the book, but uh, yeah, it's funny how these folks pop in all the time in all these other, you know, people's other stories about American history. 
Uh, exactly. David, is there anyone that you uh, kind of wish that you had included or anyone that people have made representations on their behalf and now you said, yeah, maybe they should yeah, have gone I, I was toying around with the, the idea of the, the, the Lafitte brothers, Jean and Pierre. I'd written a little bit about them in my first book. My, the, my dissertation became the my first uh, book, my monograph. Because um, they get celebrated, especially in New Orleans, right? It's kind of these, these uh, kind of roguish, devil may care. They were pirates, but they joined the American side at the Battle of New Orleans. So, so they were okay. Uh, but they were, you know, they were pirates and, and uh, smugglers. Uh, yes, they joined the uh, Battle of New Orleans, but they're not slave traders, slave traders. right? Pro- I mean, prolific slave traders. Um, yeah, and really then big. they were spies for Spain. They signed up to Spanish agents. Uh, they were recruited by the, uh, the, the, I think it was the rector of the St. Louis Cathedral, uh, who was a, part of the Spanish network of spies. And they, you know, uh, it was really cool. When I, I visited there, I could see the cathedral there. I was like, oh, that, that's where they walked down this alley. And that's where they had their meeting to become Spanish spies. And then they turned on the Spanish. Yeah, so guys are very flexible loyalties, as you mentioned. Uh, so yeah, there are guys like this all the time, oftentimes in the West where, you know, playing the angles and playing one country umpiring against each other is a effective way to make space for yourself and your own agenda. Well, my guests today have been David Head and Timothy Hemis. They are co-editors of the new book, A Republic of Scoundrels. David, Tim, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone. And I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 